Listen now to the Word of God. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, that, who calls herself a, a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches minds and hearts. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Do you remember being in the classroom when the teacher would step out for a moment? <laughs> I think so. Imagine this, this scenario that I'm going to put before you today. Just imagine this. The teacher would say, uh, finish these questions on the reading. Then she'd glance at you and add, keep the place in order for a few minutes until I get back. And she'd disappear out the door. There are a few seconds of deafening quiet as the energy in the room invisibly began to swell. Then the silence was broken by the first spitwad that splattered on the back blackboard, making a far louder sound than you could have imagined in a quiet classroom. That was followed by the first muffled giggle. Then from everywhere at once, the room seemed to erupt with adolescent foolishness as if it were suddenly filled with some gaseous toxin that impedes all forms of self-control. And you were supposed to keep things in order. Come on, guys, settle down. You'd say that with half a voice and with complete foreknowledge that it would have no effect at all, even on the few that may have heard it. Then you'd say it, once more with a bit more force. Come on, guys. But nothing. As you tried to think of what to do next, the activities started to take a bizarre twist, like you were having a bad dream. Three guys converged around one to finish off a playground dispute. 
a girl started flirting with the quiet guy across the aisle in a very inappropriate manner. The geeks began sabotaging IT equipment in creatively perverse ways, while two thugs outright destroyed various other items that were in the room, using them for purposes that their designers had never even imagined. Some of the activities were mindless. Some were deviant. Some were outright criminal. And you were in charge. With a sick stomach, you'd just look back at your desk and try to do some of the assigned work in the midst of the chaos. And just as you did, the teacher returned to the room. And your eyes met. What were you going to say? You didn't enter into the chaos, but you really didn't do all that much to stop it either. You feel helpless and defensive and innocent and guilty all at the same time. Got the feeling? But... As it turned out, your teacher had witnessed the whole thing by a hidden camera and a microphone. She knew exactly what had taken place in her absence, and she'd captured it all on recording. We could spend a lot of time with this scenario and do different things with it, but I use it this morning because I think this scene describes something of what faithful believers in Thyatira may have been feeling the first time they heard this letter from Jesus addressing the state of affairs in their church. If you've got that feeling of what it would have been like to have been in a classroom where that happened, you may know something of what it would feel like to sit in Thyatira in the classroom and listen to the letter from Jesus. So I would just say this morning, let's listen in on his word to them and see if there might be other things we might be able to identify with as well. Again, let's look at this letter in the four stages that we've been using for each. In this particular one, the ascription is there in verse 18. The assessment in verses 19 through 21. The assignment verses 22 through 25, and then the assurance, verses 26 to 29. So that's the, that outline is printed for you in the bulletin. You're welcome to use that as we progress through this text. Let's just look at it together. First, the ascription. Look at verse 18 here. Jesus identified himself as the Son of God. That immediately catches our attention because it's a description that wasn't used in the vision of chapter 1. In each one of his introductions to the letters, he draws on that vision, but he gives us something here that wasn't there. Now certainly it could have been assumed that he was the Son of God because he is called there one like a Son of Man. And that description recalled Daniel chapter 7 as we talked about when we uh, saw that uh, in chapter 1. And this one here that he uses also of himself, here in chapter 2, verse 18, one who has eyes like a flame of fire 
and feet like burnished bronze. If we were to take a moment and look back at Daniel chapter 10, we would see that description there. So it clearly reminds us of something going on in the prophecy of Daniel chapter 10. So these two taken together cause this reference to the Son of God also then to remind us of something else from Daniel. This time from chapter 3 where the three friends of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, are thrown into the fiery furnace. And Daniel records there that one like a son of the gods was seen in the fire with his friends. And here we're starting to just string together a list of references that are echoes in how Jesus presents himself. Son of God, but also son of man, one like the son of gods. And we're the feet of fire or burnished bronze and eyes of fire were... We're putting together images from the Old Testament prophet Daniel and are starting to get an impression of who Jesus is and how he's actually presenting himself to this particular church. So we've gone from Revelation 2.18 back to Daniel 7.13 to Daniel 10.6 to Daniel 3.25 and then these references from Daniel set up a link with the Messianic Psalm, Psalm 2, where we read, The Lord said, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. And we go to Psalm 2 not just because of those links through Daniel, but we go there because Psalm 2 appears right here in verse 27 of Revelation 2. A reference is made to Psalm chapter 2, verse 9. My friends, all of this works together to help us understand who Jesus is, and I will put it together in one singular thought. Jesus is presenting himself, he's introducing himself here in a way that is reminiscent or causes us to think of him as a judge, an all-seeing, all-knowing, divine, just, and now long-promised, Psalm 2, judge. He's showing up to judge the church at Thyatira and he's introduced himself in such a way that they know they will reckon with him. So drawing all of these texts together, that's the impression we have of Jesus from his opening words when he says, these are the words of the Son of God who has eyes like flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze. We have to take a moment with that one as well because this reference to feet like burnished bronze isn't just a reminder of Daniel chapter 10. It's also, as so often happens in these letters, a unique link to the city itself. Thyatira was a bronze smelting city. They knew bronze in Thyatira and what Jesus is saying by this introduction of himself is that he knows life in Thyatira. This would be like introducing himself to a church in Pittsburgh saying, I have feet of steel. The people would say, I know something about steel. It's a steel-smelting city. Jesus knows life in Thyatira. He's not just the divine, all-seeing, all-knowing, just judge. He's in complete touch with what's going on in their city. 
This is a commercial city, Thyatira is, with many trade guilds. Normally, Rome frowned on trade guilds, but they allowed guilds there in Thyatira because Thyatira was a, a city useful to the empire. They were a useful supplier of different products to surrounding cities, not least to the Roman troops that were stationed nearby in Pergamum. We have said on a couple of occasions that Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum were kind of competing with one another to see which one of them was the most influential, the, the, the richest and best city in Asia at the time. <laughs> one of commentators' opening words about Pergamum was it was the least uh, important, uh, least wealthy, least prominent city in Asia at the time. This, we've immediately jumped to the other end of the spectrum when we go to Thyatira. This is a working class city. It's a blue collar city. And it's an exporting city. The work that's done in Thyatira goes out to a lot of places. The problem was that each of these trade guilds that we mentioned had a patron deity. In the words of one commentator, George Beasley Murray, he says, the feasts of the guilds were held in a temple and were viewed as religious occasions. The meat was offered to the gods so that participants shared it with him, and the occasions then frequently ended in debauchery of all sorts. You can imagine the problem this caused for Christian business people in Thyatira. Do you remember who was from Thyatira? Lydia, Acts 16, seller of purple. Historically, we know there was a guild for her trade. We're not far away at all from people we know from Scripture, and we know she was a faithful lady. We know how helpful she was to Paul and Silas as they were on their journey and what happened there. She was from Thyatira. She knew life in that city as well. But this set up problems for the Christians. All kinds of rationalizations must have gone on in their heads to try to figure out how they could make a living in Thyatira and remain faithful believers at the same time. We can have that feeling still today, can't we? We wonder on different occasions how far our compromise will have to go just in order to keep buying and selling. Those who plug into a certain view of the book of Revelation wonder about that all the time. How far do you go into the life of, a, of the culture in which you live before you've compromised to the point where you're cooperating with the beast? rather than standing with the king. These folks were facing that kind of tension right there in Thyatira in their day. How can you make a living and remain a faithful believer at the same time? And evidently, there were some in Thyatira who were teaching that the guild activities were acceptable for Christians. After all, Paul had written in 
in his first letter to the Corinthians, hadn't he? 1 Corinthians 8, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there's no God but one. Hadn't Paul written that? This is, this is proof. That doesn't matter. Christians can do this kind of thing. It's not going to impede their walk with the Lord. Actually, Paul wrote many more things in Corinthians, like you can't fellowship at the table of demons and at the table of the Lord. He wrote many other things, but statements like this could get singled out. What could it hurt to take part? We have to make a living, don't we? Well, this and other verses and other arguments, I'm sure, could have been carefully twisted there in Thyatira may have caused them to become more comfortable participating in the guild feasts, people there in the church. But Jesus wasn't buying this at all. His eyes of fire saw right through that empty argument. He called the chief proponent there in Thyatira Jezebel, verse 20. And he called her teaching seduction. That's what she was doing to the church. She was seducing the church. It's a similar kind of dynamic that was going on in Pergamum, but it has a special face here and probably a particular proponent here in Thyatira. Now, this may have been a literal woman, and her name may well have been Jezebel. That's all possible. But really, the image here is more reflective of that wicked and ruthless wife of King Ahab from 1 Kings chapter 1 or 1 Kings chapter 16 verse through verse chapter 22 covering the life of Ahab and Jezebel Jezebel who pressed Israel into idolatry in the expression of Baal worship this is another lesson quick lesson in apocalyptic We don't know whether there was one woman advancing this teaching in Thyatira. We don't know whether her name is Jezebel. It's entirely possible. But if that's what we're pressing on, we're missing the point. The point here is to identify this woman. And we think it probably was a woman because it would have been just as easy to pick the name of a man like we did earlier in one of the earlier letters with Balaam. If it were a man doing this, so it's quite possible that it's a woman and it, her name may have been Jezebel, but if so, that's secondary to the fact of how she embodies a very familiar character from 1 Kings 16 through 22. And her work there in Thyatira had been going on for some time. Look at verse 21. I gave her time to repent, Jesus said, but she refuses. He's been patient with her, but she's not turning. And it's not just that Jesus is waiting. I'm sure that during this process, there were things that would confront this Jezebel and put in front of her the odiousness of her actions in the church, how Jesus hated what she was doing among his people, but she refused to turn. That's the word he uses. She refused even though he gave her time to repent. The 
like a Christian salesman today who might participate fully with his colleagues on an incentive trip to Las Vegas, allegedly just to keep his job. Evidently, such was life for many here in Thyatira. Many were being faced with that dilemma. Alongside these people, though, that were being seduced into living a life that was not pleasing to the Lord, there were others in Thyatira, and we see those right from the start, right after Jesus introduces himself in verse 18. Look at verse 19. Here's some others that were there. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter work exceeds the first. Or actually it's the works that's plural, isn't it? Your latter works exceed the first. Works is an important word in this letter to Thyatira. Underline it the number of times you see it. It's, this letter is anchored to that word, works, in some important ways. So there were others in Thyatira who were living and loving and serving and faithfully enduring. In fact, they were growing in their expressions of love and service and faith. They were making it in this toughest of places. They were standing faithful and they were standing firm. God bless these folk. That's the people we want to imitate from this letter. Those are the folks with whom we want to remember that it's possible in an environment like that to stand firm and to stand faithful. So that was the assessment. Let's move on now into the assignment. The assignment and then the assurance get much more attention here in this letter than they do percentage-wise in the others. It's just interesting to note that. We've got a two-fold assessment. We've got some of you that are doing well. There are some of you that aren't at all. So let's get into what's required for both. The assignment. Verse 22, Behold, Jesus said, I love that word. It, it, it sounds so biblical, doesn't it? Behold. That's like saying, see here, look. I know what that used to mean when I heard someone in authority say it. <laughs> and I heard it many times in my lifetime. My mother's here to bear witness to that. I heard see here on many occasions. Jesus uses it with Thyatira right here. And it means the same thing then as it does now. See here, behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. This is probably talking about the ringleader repenting of her works, along with the others who are advancing her teaching along with her. This sickbed indicates some form of physical suffering, almost certainly, which is part and parcel of the great tribulation that's also mentioned right here in the same verse, together then as an outpouring of God's judgment. 
If we take this reference in light of the other descriptions in this book, this is the wrath of God being poured out in Thyatira in a limited way on a particular group of people, but it's the wrath of God being poured out on that city from which His people, we are told as this letter, the big letter of Revelation, not just the small one to Thyatira right here, as this big letter of Revelation progresses, we're told that His people will be spared from that expression of His wrath. The wrath of God has fallen on Jesus for those who have trusted in Him. So it seems here that we are being told that these folks are unconverted. They're, in fact, unbelievers that are hearing and responding to the teaching of Jezebel and that are advancing it. And further description is given in verse 23. Those who follow her here will not just be thrown onto a sickbed. Those who follow her will be struck dead. Those who commit adultery with her, that's a, that seems to be those that are falling under her influence will be struck with sickness. Her children, that seems to be those who follow, doing the same things that she's doing, aren't struggling necessarily, but are fully engaged. Her children will be struck dead, the text says here, verse 23, just like Jezebel's children, by the way, the 70 sons of Ahab were struck down, first king, I'm sorry, second kings, 10, in fulfillment of the Lord's prophecy from 1 Kings 21. So some will get sick and some will die. Boy, you hear echoes of 1 Corinthians 11 and being seated at the table of the Lord here, don't you? Paul in that letter put the, the, the table of the Lord and the table of demons or, or idol worship in pagan temples side by side and said you can't do both. And here, in this letter, where we have that same kind of dynamic going on, we hear that the judgment of God is being poured out in terms of sickness and death. So echoes of 1 Corinthians 11, verse 30. Some will get sick, some will die. You just can't delve into the deep things of Satan without consequence. That's the lesson. Now, we don't know exactly entirely what the deep things of Satan are referring to here, but it, we know from what was going on in Thyatira that it's some expression or combination of those things, but we also hear something more in it, the deep things of Satan. It starts to sound like the sort of secret insider knowledge that, that blossomed into full flower with the rise of Gnosticism in the early second century of the church. Remember, we're in the last decade, maybe even the last half decade of the first century here as Revelation is being written, and in the early second century, Gnosticism was in full flower by that time, and this description, the deep things of Satan, just sounds a lot like that expression of false teaching. This is the same sort of so-called secret insight or insider standing with God that lives on in what we know today as New Age type spirituality. Such proponents might say something like, 
you know, I'm really okay even if I'm living solely to please myself. After all, I'm God. Really. And that is the secret knowledge. I can do whatever seems right in my eyes. That's what it means. Recognize the language from the book of Judges. I can do whatever seems right in my own eyes. And I can claim it's God who's drawn me into such privileged freedom, such insider knowledge to know that that is the secret of how to live in this life. I think it's something along those lines that capture the deep things of Satan. Complete reversal of the truths of God's Word such that I am justified in pursuing my own best interest. I'm justified in pursuing that which my heart desires. Some may have called this the deep things of God, our day. But Jesus here rightly calls it the deep things of Satan. It's the antithesis. It's the reversal of where Christians belong. These are the ones then who will be thrown onto a sickbed and thrown into great tribulation rather than being kept from it by the grace of God in Christ. These are the ones who whose followers will be struck dead and the precision of Jesus' outpouring of judgment upon them will prove with clarity that he sees all and that he knows all and that he's meticulously just. That comes to us in verse 23. This will be seen by all the churches. It will be known that I am the one who searches mind and heart and I will give to each according to their works. This will be seen. It will be known. It will be undeniable that Jesus sees clearly what he's doing in response to the works of those that are in Thyatira and to any who imitate those works. What he does will be provable as just. He sees all, including that which perceived to be the deep things, the hidden knowledge. He sees it all and he will respond perfectly toward it. Nobody's going to fool him. He's not going to be fooled by the magician's trick and miss the, 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 the quick reversal. Not, not Jesus, not the one with eyes like a flame of fire. Verse 24, now to those others, to the rest of you in Thyatira, and I would say also to, to us today who do not hold to this teaching, so who steer clear of all this mess by faith in Christ, to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching to, to you, to all of us, Jesus says, I do not lay on you any other burden. Isn't that beautiful? This church is fighting hard, trying to stand firm. And the ones that are standing firm, Jesus is saying, you know what? Nothing more. You just, you just keep doing what you're doing. Imagine hearing that from Jesus. That'd be a good one, wouldn't it? I, I know. I can see what you're doing. I can see where you're headed. You are surrounded. I'm not saying you're perfect. But you know what? The best thing you can do, the best thing you can do, just, 
Just press on. Just keep going the direction you're going. That's what Jesus is saying to the rest in Thyatira. I do not lay on you any other burden. And he's probably, possibly I should say, somewhere between possibly and probably, making reference to the Jerusalem Council. There's some echoes in this letter that make us think of that letter when they were working out the difference between what, what, what does a Gentile actually have to do to come to saving faith in Christ. And remember, there were four things that the council decided that you should avoid. Food sacrifice to idols, sexual immorality, things that are strangled in blood from Acts 15. So when he says, I don't lay on you any other burden, probably the point of reference that we can learn from most to say, all right, what burden have you placed on us so far? Yeah, we need to walk in obedience. Yeah, but I think with the things that are being mentioned here, what's going on in Thyatira, that, that would be a good list to follow. The Acts 15 list of requirements for the church. Verse 25 then continues on. I don't lay on you any other burden, only hold fast to what you have until I come. It just means endure. Press on in your obedience to the Word of God. Press on in your refusal to enter into the pagan life and self-gratification that's so characteristic of Thyatira. Press on. Endure until you're safe with me. By my calling you home or by my coming in glory, either one, just hold fast until I come and you'll receive all the blessings that I'm about to mention in the next section of this letter using vivid imagery. And with that, the assignment is complete and we move into the assurance. Just hold on to what you have until I come. The next place that Jesus goes is to talk about what happens for those who do, for the conquerors. The conquerors are the ones who win the battle against all the temptations toward ungodliness that increasingly grow and get increasingly heavy and increasingly tempting throughout this season known as Great Tribulation. The conquerors are the ones who prevail. The conquerors are the ones who endure. The conquerors will be given, Jesus says here, verse 26, authority over the nations to rule them, literally to shepherd them with a rod of iron. That's where we hear the echo from Psalm 2. These folks won't be left out of secret knowledge. They'll have something more precious by far. They'll be identified with the Messiah, the one promised in Psalm 2. They'll reign with him. The one with the eyes of fire will rule the nations with a rod of iron. That comes back in chapter 19, verse 15 of Revelation, by the way, where Jesus is identified in that same way. He will rule the nations with a rod of iron. That just means it's not a tenuous rule. It's not a shaky rule. It, it, it's not one that's, that's going to be quick to go away. It's a firm, solid, established rule. And these conquerors here in verse 27 will rule right along with him. That's Jesus' words. You'll have a place in my kingdom. He received authority from his Father and has purpose to share it with them. And conquering is defined for us here. It's enduring until the end in the works of Jesus, verse 26, not in the works of Jezebel, verse 22. 
We might say, to use the words of Paul from Philippians 3, that conquering is pressing on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's conquering. Doing that until Jesus either calls you home, maybe through a martyr's death, or he returns for his church. Until that day, pressing on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus is what conquering is all about. These conquerors will also receive the morning star, verse 28. This is another of those images that's tough to understand. But I want to take a minute with it because I think it's a, it's a beautiful image. I don't know that we're being given anything beyond what we've already heard. I just think we're being given what we've already heard in a more vivid expression when we get to this morning star imagery. This morning star is likely related to Jesus announcing the dawning of his kingdom. Later on, chapter 22, verse 16, he calls himself the morning star. And some just go straight from chapter 2 to straight chapter 22 and say that, that there, there's the meaning right there. He's giving himself to those who conquer. We inherit Christ. And that's a very true statement. That's good. But I think there's a richer route to go that doesn't necessarily change that. In fact, we're going to come back in just a moment and say the same thing again. But I think there's a richer route by which we get there. I really appreciate the work of Greg Beale on this particular point. More help could come to us from a lesser-known passage, namely a prophecy in Numbers 24. It's the final oracle of Balaam, who we just met in a previous letter. In the final oracle of Balaam, we read, Numbers 24, verse 17, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and it shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down the sons of Sheth. God's judgment is going to come on Moab, but this is a statement that's far grander and far bigger. What Balaam is pointing to here is the coming of Messiah. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star coming out of Jacob. This is the coming Messiah. He will rule the nations, not just Moab, but all the nations. When this star rises out of Jacob, the new age will have dawned. God's kingdom will have come. I think that's standing with the imagery of the morning star here in Revelation 2. Along with this, though, there's a couple of other things to mention. The morning star is Venus. For the Romans, that star was the symbol of victory and of sovereignty. Roman generals built temples in honor of Venus, and, and Caesar's armies had that sign inscribed on their standards. It was an important image in the Roman Empire, Venus, the morning star. So if we put all this together, it fits with the image here. I, I think what Jesus is saying here in a way that those in Thyatira might understand is that the truly sovereign one, not the Roman emperor, 
who some of them worship, or Apollo, who some of them worship, and who was also, by the way, the chief deity of the guilds. So not the Roman emperor or Apollo, both of whom are alleged to be sons of Zeus. Not these two, but the unique son of the true and living God, the Son of God, verse 18. The truly sovereign one will grant himself and his kingdom to the conquerors, to the faithful ones. And he will share his rule with them. Do you hear that? That's an amazing statement from Jesus, isn't it? Drawing together those themes and putting them together in one. It, it, it's me. It's, it's, it's me, not, not those that you're worshiping in the pagan temples. It's me, Jesus said. The Son of God, the one with eyes like flames of fire and feet like burnished bronze, it's, it's, it's I. That's who you serve. That's whose kingdom you want to inherit. Friends, you who have ears, do you hear? Do you hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches? Would you rather lose your life here to gain this one? Or forfeit this life that Jesus describes here in order to continue on pursuing that which gives you satisfaction here and now? That's the choice that Jesus is putting in front of Thyatira. That's, that's, that's the fork in the road for that church. Would you rather lose your life here and now to gain the one that Jesus is describing, or would you rather forfeit the one that Jesus is describing to keep pursuing the gratification you're pursuing here and now? My prayer is that for everyone in this room, that's not even a choice. Bring it on, and if it involves suffering, so be it. I want to receive the morning star. Do you? Amen. This calling to the faithful is the same today as it was when Jesus first wrote this letter to Thyatira. The word comes to us this morning. Just hold fast to what you have until he comes. And one thing is for certain, his coming is nearer now than it was when he wrote this letter to Thyatira, right? That's good. So endure in faithful obedience. Keep his works until the end. And you might say, oh yes, I'm all about keeping Jesus' works until the end, but let me ask you a question, not to keep guilt or to doubt anyone's honesty or sincerity this morning. It's worth testing ourselves because of all that's at stake in this letter. What were, what, what are your inclinations, the inclinations of your heart when the teacher is out of the room? What are they? How did you act back then? How would you act today? Is it faithful endurance in the works for which you're in the classroom in the first place? Or is it to seize upon a moment of freedom to indulge the flesh or to blow off steam or to have a little fun? Galatians 5 
among other passages, speaks of the gloriously rich and refreshing freedom that we receive in Christ. Do we use that freedom to advance the gospel or to satisfy self? That's the question. That's the question of what are you doing in the classroom? What's your inclination there? It's the same question. Particular expressions of freedom that we can actually point to. Did we engage in that freedom to proclaim the gospel or to enter into some level of recreation or self-gratification, refreshment? Better way to ask it. Who is refreshed by our expressions of freedom? Is it others around us as Jesus taught should happen? Or is it only we ourselves? If we're in the habit of using our freedom exclusively or primarily for our own satisfaction rather than for loving like Jesus and proclaiming his liberating truth, then, my friends, we're already straying toward the seduction of Jezebel in Thyatira. That's a good way to test it. Right now, right now, the teacher is out of the room. How do we respond? He's out of the room, but he's not unaware of what's happening. And he doesn't need a hidden camera or microphone. He's seeing with eyes of fire. He sees all. He knows all. And in his own words from the Gospel of Luke, when he comes, will he find faith on earth? What will he find when he returns to the classroom? Will he find us faithfully enduring in his works? Let me put it in the words of 1 John 2. Again, from the pen of John, but I'll put John's words in Jesus' mouth and deliver them as a charge. 1 John chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. And now, little children, abide in me. Now, in the classroom, abide in me. So that when I appear, you may have confidence and not shrink back from me in shame at my coming. If you know that I am righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of me. Those are Jesus' words. Are we practicing his righteousness here and now? Are we pursuing his kingdom? Are we recognizing the richness of our inheritance of the morning star? Are we restoring order to the classroom to the praise of God's glorious grace that allows for such? There's our calling. That's what it looks like to hold on in his works until the end. Holding on isn't a static, I, I believe the right things, and so I'm just going to, I keep believing the right things and sitting in a corner until he comes. No, it's, it's holding on to his works until he comes. This is continuing to follow the Great Commission. There's a good similar, simple bottom line of his works. Continuing to follow the Great Commission until the day there is no breath left in my body either because I have succumbed to death in this world or because my breath has been taken away by the return of the crucified, risen Lord. Are we together on this? Let's pursue it.
Pray with me now. We will remember our Lord's death, and then we will go out from this place to proclaim it until he comes. Let's pray, and as we do, both servers and musicians, please come to the front. Heavenly Father, thank you for the words of Jesus. Help us to hear them with the ears enabled by the Spirit. And help us to respond as ones who have been made alive in him. And would rather die to the pleasures of this world for the love of our Savior and the kingdom he has promised. Than to forfeit that in pursuit of our own desires here and now. Oh Lord, save us. Sovereignly by the work of Jesus being applied to us. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.